The sermon text this morning is found in the book of Judges, chapter 10, verses 6 through 10, and Judges chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, and 28 through 40. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Amorites, the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. Chapter 11, verses 28 through 40. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. Then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aror to the neighborhood of Mineth, twenty cities as far as Abel Karamim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said to her, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountain. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. 
She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. You can't make this stuff up. You just can't. You know, normally when a, a text like this is preached, um, it centers on Jephthah. You know, it's a story about him and this ill-conceived, or at least what seems to be an ill-conceived vow. And uh, it kind of focuses on him. And I'll probably disappoint you again, because what I'd like to focus in on is God. Because I think that the passage really is about the very mercy of God in pursuing a people like us that's constantly wayward. And if you've been here for a little bit in the past three, four weeks, you have just seen over and over that you know, Israel's kind of spiraling into this, into this downward idolatry. And yet in the darkness into which we're going, you see the brightness of God's mercy and grace. So we're going to look at this passage today as God is mercy is beyond measure. So his mercy, you know, particularly for those of us who are aware of our own sin and brokenness, his mercy goes beyond our sin, and his mercy is made man manifest in a deliverer being sent, and this deliverer will save at great cost, and, and we don't want to neglect this salvation. Now some of you, if you're new, you're probably thinking, does this guy know that it's Father's Day, and what are we doing on Jephthah? I, I do know it's Father's Day. And, uh, but I want to introduce you to one who is a perfect father in every way. And that's the nature of God that we're going to see here. He's a father that you can run to even when you have failed just miserably. You can run to him as a father. So let's look first at God's mercy that goes beyond measure. You see this in the first part in chapter 10, verses 6 to 16. Uh, just look with me at 6 to 9. He says, The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. The gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel. That year, for 18 years, they oppressed the people. So you kind of see Israel kind of out of control. I mean, they're not worshiping the gods of one nation, two nations, three nations. Five nations. Five nations are. So they are, they are in it up to their eyeballs. Now God is a, is a loving, and they, by the way, they were being oppressed. I mean, God is a loving father. He will not keep peace with something that destroys his children. And so you see that God sells them over. He gives them over to be oppressed. And they were deeply oppressed. And this is the mercy of God. Make no mistake about it. It is the mercy of God. It's like C.S. Lewis said, it's kind of the megaphone of God to wake us up to the reality of our lives. And so they're oppressed. Now notice what God does next, though. Uh, look with me at 11 and 12. God speaks and says, did I not save you from the Egyptians, Egyptians, and from the Amorites, and from the Ammonites, and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also, the Amalekites, the Mennites, the oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you've forsaken me and served other gods, therefore I will save you no more. Go and cry out to whom you've chosen, let them save you. Now don't walk away from this and think that he has kind of abandoned us or forsaken us. God is using the oppression of the people to wake them up to the reality that these gods cannot save. The gods that they pursue are impotent to save. You see the mercy of God here. 
as he rattles off all the gods that they worship, he then rattles off all the times that he saved them. It's the kindness of God that draws us to himself. And this is what you see in 15 and 16. The people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them, and they served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel, or he became um, yeah, impatient over their suffering. He could bear it no more is what he means. In other words, you see here what seems to be a genuine conversion. They say, whatever you think, God. So instead of us trying to rationalize and make a case to God for why we're doing what we're doing, we just submit, if, if whatever you think, I'm going with. So you see humility there. You see putting away foreign idols. They're turning away from the gods that they worship. And now they're serving the Lord God. So you see some marks of repentance. And then you see God respond with mercy. He said, I could bear your misery no more. God is compassionate. Even though their oppression is self-inflicted, God still moves with compassion. Now, many of us, I do think, we kind of write ourselves out of God's story. You've fallen so far, you've repeated your sins, you have just, you can't seem to beat yourself out of a paper bag, and you just think that God is done with you. You look at God as if we look at the culture. We, we live in a culture that is based upon meritocracy. What you do is what you get, and, and that's all you deserve. And yet we meet a God in the scriptures that's different. He, he's different than us. We may bear his image, but his mercy goes well beyond our imagination. And so God is merciful. So here you find in chapter 10, verses 6 to 16, God's mercy is incredible. He pursues a constantly wayward people. That's you and that's me. All the things that I've done, all the times that I've done it, God's mercy is just present there. Now, a couple of lessons I want to pull from just this. I do want to warn you, though, over the nature of idolatry. It does enslave. What do I mean by that? The things that you love most, you will worship. And the things that you worship, you will serve. We think of idolatry as kind of those folks who stand before statues, maybe wooden, maybe stone, and they worship the gods. And we think, you know, how ridiculous is that? But let me remind you, they're not foolish people. I mean, they're not looking at the wooden stone as if those things can do anything. Those gods always represent things. A goddess of fertility, a god of power, a god of crops. So they're looking at things that they need or they want or they think that will make them happy, and they're worshiping those gods through that. It's the same idolatry. It's the same stuff. You see it with us. We, you know, idolatry is made up of the good things of life. You know, it's having a good family, having a good husband or, or good children security and finances or health those things that we want you can identify the places where you are idolatrous or i am by asking questions like what do i want most in life what do i need most in life what am i most in fear of losing what if i don't get it will mean that my life won't be fulfilled sometimes you see it in the business community you see the man or the woman striving so hard in business i mean they'll do anything i mean they'll work so hard and they'll work all the hours and they have relationships, relationships at home, but you know what? They're going to be submitted and subordinate to me achieving this at work. And, and if i got to play a little loose with ethics to make sure I climb the ladder, I'll do that. You see them, that's just service. It's just worship. You're just bringing your, your offerings to this God. Of I'm not working for a living. I'm working for my name. 
You see this over and over. And what the warning is that these, these idols are impotent to give you the satisfaction and the joy that you want. It can be the best job. It can be the best body. It can be the most financial, the greatest financial security. They won't save you. They just leave you hungrier, like trying to quench your thirst with a glass of salt water. It only increases. The, that's the nature of idolatry. It seeks to destroy you. C.S. Lewis wrote this in Mere Christianity. He said, most people, if they have really learned to look into their hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us, their longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I'm now speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful. He says, I am not now speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we've grasped at in that first moment of longing, which just fades away in the reality of getting it. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife. The hotels and the scenery may have been excellent. And chemistry may have been a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. They just don't produce. They don't produce. You know, we had a neighbor, this is years ago, the neighbor was dying of cancer. He knew he was dying. He didn't have long to live. We went over and wanted to share the gospel with him on a number of occasions. Carol, even more than I, and on one visit when she was over there, in a moment of great lucidity and honesty, he looked at her and said, I am afraid of the fires of hell. Now, this was a man who was a physics professor, brilliant, made a life of science. That was his world, science. And he said, I am afraid of the fires of hell, and all the books have, all the books, all his books of philosophy and science, he goes, they're offering me nothing now. They have nothing to offer me. This time of acute transparency and lucidity and awareness, and he, the gods are impotent. They cannot save me. This is what he's warning us about, that to be mindful of the things that we love and to turn and repent from that. And that's really the second lesson you see in this first section here is there's a big difference between recognizing the sin and repenting of the sin. You notice in verse 10, they cried out and said, we've forsaken the Lord, we've served the Baals. They recognize, we can all recognize our sin. I mean, usually the repercussions are there before us. We see it, we don't like it, we don't like the consequences. But recognizing and confessing is not the same as repenting. Repenting isn't saying, God, I want you if you change this. Repentance is, I want you even if you don't change this. Repentance is turning away from the things that we've been rooting our identity and happiness and security in, and turning to God, being like the one who trusts in the God of Zion. He will not be shaken. He will not be moved. It's a turning to God. In fact, one author said it beautifully. He says that most of us have to fight through to real repentance. We all have that initial sense of conviction, perhaps even confession, but to really go to the step of saying, I've identified what I have been in love with and has led me to this kind of unsatisfaction 
and I'm going to turn from it now. And that's a different thing. You know, David Pallison, former professor of counseling, you know, says to take your soul to task. I, I want to call you to consider your own lives. What have you found? Maybe it's the affirmation of people. Maybe it is financial security. Maybe it's, it's career, or it's having a beautiful marriage, or finding the perfect mate. Whatever, these things may be good, and they may be fine in and of themselves, but the degree to which you long for them to provide for you, which only God can provide, that is the beginning of idolatry. And it's upon repentance that he says, I could bear their misery no more. In other words, God is compact. He's waiting for us to wake up and then he comes to save. And that's what we see next. His mercy goes beyond imagination, but his mercy is not abstract. It's not in theory, but you see it manifests itself in a deliverer. And that's where we meet Jephthah in chapter 11 of Judges. Now look with me back at chapter 10, actually in verse 18. He says, and the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, who is, this, who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over the inhabitants of Gilead. So Gilead is being uh, confronted with this Ammonite army. And the people are scared, and they turn. Who's going to deliver us? The people are now looking for a deliverer. They're looking for a judge. And then we meet this judge in verse 11. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Ah, oh, that's bad news. It says, and Gideon, uh, Gilead's wife also bore him other sons. And when his wife's sons grew, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. So here God introduces a judge to us, a deliverer that he is sending, who is the son of a prostitute. Who would pick him? Well, they didn't. They drove him out, right? But then the pressure comes on. War brings them to their senses like smelling salts. And this is what we read in 6 and 7. He says, They said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you're in distress? We see this picture of the people that they rejected, they're now pursuing. And what's amazing as you continue to read chapter 11 is that he goes back. There doesn't appear any bitterness. There isn't any rancor in him. He comes and he leads this people. And yet he's a social outcast. He doesn't have a pedigree of royalty. He doesn't come from aristocracy. He's a son of a prostitute. He's an outcast. He has outcasts around him. He's a guy that none of us would pick, and yet he comes back and he leads the people. And the first thing he does is he begins to make this diplomatic overture to the king of, of Ammon. He, he says, hold it now before you attack. And if you read from verses 12 all the way through 28 in chapter 11, you see him give both historical and theological and legal reasoning why they have no right to attack. It's rational. It's reasoned. It's godly. You see in him a belief in God. So Jephthah is not some loose cannon, some darkened, cultured individual. He seems to be a, a godly man, rational, reasoned, diplomatic, and measured. So the, the lesson to pull out of this calling of Jephthah 
is that God saves us through unconventional ways. Now, that's not new to you. You've heard me say that over and over as we have gone through this. I mean, I mean it, it shows us the unique nature of God. But before I get to Jephthah, let me just speak to you for a minute. Because, you know, why would God keep choosing people that we don't choose? I really think it's to give us hope. In other words, when we really look in the mirror, and we really see who we are, and if we're honest with ourselves, and we see how often we failed, how broken we often act, how jealous and envious and angry and bitter we can become just on the turn of a dime, and we begin to wonder, like, what monster is in us? How could God ever look at us with mercy? How could God ever walk in any sort of right relationship with me? I think God keeps choosing these people that we don't look at with any sort of honor, he's using them to give us hope that he may use us, that he can love us. Now, I know that's hard. Sometimes just thinking about God really does love me, but we have such an acute awareness of who we really are, it's hard to believe that. But I think he's giving us hope. You see this in the ministry of Jesus. He's hanging out with people most of us don't hang out with. I mean, he's going to the dregs of society that we tend to feel like we've come out of and grown away from. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians. He says, consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God has a purpose for pulling up those that we often look down upon to remind us God inverts our order. What we and how we measure people is not how he does it. And I'm thankful for that. And I'm hopeful in that because I know who I really am. And I'm thankful that he looks kindly upon the broken. But I think he's doing more. In picking Jephthah, I think he's preparing a people to identify the Messiah when he would eventually come. Think about Jephthah for a minute. He is an outcast, he's despised, he's rejected. I mean, not only that, he's an illegitimate son. You know, the leaders of Israel knew that Jesus Christ was an illegitimate son. They knew he wasn't the son of Joseph. Jesus had the same tag. You see in Jephthah, who's a type of Christ, if you will, you see that if the people of Israel, when Jesus got on the scene, if they would have just gone back and read the book of Judges, they would see how God keeps picking judges and saviors and deliverers that don't fit the standard mold. And they might have seen, oh, the, unconvention the unconventional ways of Jesus. Now it kind of makes sense. God was preparing the people to identify the Messiah. So, Jephthah comes and he delivers. So God in his mercy, which is beyond measure, brings about a deliverer. We see Jephthah. And he delivers, but he delivers at great cost to himself. And this is where we get into some deep waters here. Look with me at 29 to 33. He says, And the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on Mitzpah of Gilead. And from Mitzpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites, and Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites 
shall be the Lord's. And I'll offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. It's kind of interesting, particularly coming out of Gideon, there's very little written about the victory. It's just one line, and he gave them into his hand. Just, there's not much there. It's overshadowed by this vow. Now, vows are throughout the Old Testament. That's not unusual. But I think this vow seems to be a bit unusual in the sense that it's being carried out with his daughter. So what do we do with this? What do we do? I mean, many scholars today will quickly just move right to this. The guy was a loose cannon. I, I, I mean, he was a pagan in his thinking. He somehow got in his mind that God, Yahweh, would be, would be grateful for a human sacrifice. He's so culturally darkened that he doesn't even know how God opposes, how he vehemently opposes human sacrifice. And so we write him off as just a nut, an outlaw. Well, you know, when we looked at Barak, I tried to argue he wasn't a zero, but he was a hero. And I'm going to attempt to do the same thing here. I think we've given Jephthah a bad rap. Now, let me try to explain this to you. Because I know that most of you, the cement, when it was still wet, it was pressed in with Jephthah, is just an example to run from. Let me try to point out a few things about this story, though. Look at me back when it says that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's and I'll offer it as a burnt offering. Now, I do want to point out that Hebrew scholars, even first-year Hebrew students, know that that, that uh, conjunction and can be translated in many ways. It can be translated and or it can be translated or. It depends upon the context. So it could, be, it could be understood, whatever comes out of the house, whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites, shall be the Lord's, or I will offer it as a burnt offering. So I'd propose to you that, that there could be two parts of this one vow. Now the reason I bring this up isn't just because I'm trying to play with syntax to save Jephthah's, you know, some bad ink. But, you know, in Leviticus 27, 1 to 13, you have a similar breakdown where in the first eight verses, you have the laws of what it is to dedicate a person to the Lord. What does it mean to dedicate a person to the Lord? And in verses 9 to 13, you have what it is to dedicate an animal to the Lord or offer a burnt offering. So you have in Leviticus 27 the same breakdown. Here's how you dedicate a person. Here's how you dedicate an animal as a burnt offering. That's what you see here. But I think there's more than that. Uh, in 29, if you notice what heads the whole thing off, is it says, then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. Now, what do we do with that? I don't mean to imply that because you have the Spirit of the Lord, you can't sin. But the proximity of the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and then he makes this vow. How do we reconcile that? The only other times that the Spirit of the Lord comes upon someone and judges, it's always to do a commendable thing. Not something as heinous as burning your own daughter. So I, it, it makes more sense to see there's something else going on. But, th but there's more than that. You know, this idea of, of him being kind of a culturally darkened, pagan-thinking man, it doesn't square with what we find in the balance of these chapters. We've seen that he is a man who speaks the word of God to his family in verse 11 of chapter 11. He has a meticulous understanding of how God works with Israel in verses 12 through 28. He speaks about God as judge in 27. 
You see him diplomatic, you see him rational, you see him measured. But besides all that, in 1 Samuel 12 and in Hebrews 11, he's known as a man of great faith. So it doesn't seem that he, he could be both. Uh, but besides that, you know, there are other passages in Scripture where people are dedicated. You know, we're just going to find and admit it, Samson's going to be dedicated to the Lord, to service. You know, Hannah takes Samuel, and 1 Samuel 1 dedicates him to the Lord. So he's dedicated a life of service to the Lord. You see the sons of Aaron in Ezekiel, or in um, Exodus 29 and Leviticus 8, the sons of Aaron are dedicated to the Lord. Uh, so this idea of whoever comes out of the door of the house will be dedicated to the Lord, it has other examples. But not only that, there's more. You think about when she comes out and she's dancing and she's so faithful and says, let it be, give me two months. What is she mourning over? If you have two months to live, you won't be mourning over your virginity. You'll be mourning over your life. And yet she mourns over her virginity. Why? Well, because not just simply that she won't know a man intimately. That's not the point. Every woman of Israel wanted to be the one that had the Messiah. The seed that was promised to Eve, every woman wanted that. She would never be married. She would never have a children. And she's mourning that. He tears his clothes because you know what? He'll never have a descendant. She's his only child. He'll never, his name will be written out of the book of Israel. So he mourns over that. You can even look in 39 where it says, at the end of two months she returned to her father who did according, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. And she was a virgin. Now it's interesting. You know, scholars will say those, those passages are coterminous. In other words, one moves on the other. They can't be seen as two different truths. One causes the other. It, it doesn't say uh, that he did according to his vow that he had made and she died or that she was burnt or that she was sacrificed. It says that she was a virgin. She stayed a virgin. Now, I'm not here to get points to try to convince you that Jephthah is a great guy. I, I'm just trying to show you that God's deliverer, God's savior, I, I think he's gotten a lot of bad press. And I think in, in concert, when you step back from all these chapters, I think it makes more sense. This is God's deliverer for us. Now, a couple lessons to take away from this. Whatever you end up with, you do see that making vows is extremely serious. Uh, we can't live in community and not make vows. All of us make vows. Think, you know, some sections of Christianity say we never take a vow. We won't take a vow. We take vows all the time. We're promising things. We're giving assurances. Not just in marriage. That would be one huge example. But we give assurances and promises all the time. I just think we need to be mindful about what we're saying and how we're promising. We could start with those of you who are married. You do have, you've made vows. You've made vows to love. And good times, bad times. You've made promises to support, to pray for, to encourage. Are you walking those vows out? I mean, are you taking those vows seriously? You promise before God and before others. But, but it's more than just the marrieds. It's the singles. It's the widow, the widower. It, it's we give assurances all the time. We do it at work. We do it in our community. We do it at church. Are we being faithful and thoughtful in making those and keeping those? 
Uh, last week, we had all those new members come up and join, and we all promised. You promised, I promised. We all gave them, we made a vow. We said we would involve them in our lives, that we would seek as far as, you know, whatever opportunity we have, whatever ability we have, we will love them and serve them and seek that they might find God glorious at the end of our lives. You made that vow. We want to be serious and faithful about keeping those. Now, if you make a vow that is ungodly, then break it and confess it and say, you know what, I've made a horrible vow. I, to, to try to make a horrible vow and then to try to think that you can be righteous and fulfilling it, that's just two wrongs. Two wrongs don't add up and make a right. So confess it, repent, ask for forgiveness, both from God and the one that you made the vow. But clearly we're called the tongue has great power. Be mindful of the vows that you take. But the other lesson we learn from this section here is that salvation is free. It's mercy. It's based on God's mercy. But it's not without cost. You see that the salvation of Israel over the Ammonites came at the cost of Jephthah's only child. His only child. Now, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to go move to the New Testament and see that the salvation of men and women through faith was through the giving of God's only child. I, I'm not cooking this stuff up with smoke and mirrors. He had an only child. Her life was dedicated to God as part of the salvation of the people. Here we have the same thing, where God has given to us his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him, would not perish, but have eternal life. This is how salvation is wrought. God has made a promise that he would send a deliverer, and he kept his promise by sending his only begotten son. And that son has died for our sins and guilt and shame. So our forgiveness and our reconciliation with God isn't because we're going to play nicey-nicey. It's rooted squarely on the person of Jesus Christ. It's not how good we feel. It's as Miguel prayed today. It isn't, how, it isn't rooted on our shaker confidence. Our salvation is rooted in the work that he has done. God made a promise, he kept a promise, and it's in Jesus Christ alone. The last part of this sermon is kind of a sad warning here. So you see God's grace is beyond measure. God's grace and God's mercy is manifest in a delivery. He sent a Savior, and this Savior saved at great cost. But notice what happens in chapter 12. We didn't read it because these passages are so long that they're taking a, a bit of time to read. But let me just read to you the pertinent verses. Because in these verses, you see that Ephraim, another tribe of Israel, takes up an argument against, against Jephthah and his armies. Look with me at 12, 1 to 3. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites, and when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Now, it's kind of a sad scene here. You have a great victory. The Ammonites have been subdued. There's peace now. And here we have another tribe of Israel coming against Jephthah and his armies. 
and they're, they're about to make, I'm going to burn your house over you. So they're not coming to say, hey, how did it go? I, and I love people coming after the victory. I would have been there for you. I would have helped you out if you just would have called me. He said, I called you. Now, the Ephraimites, they seem to have a problem with coming to the party lately. You know, we saw that with Gideon last week. They want to come late. Why, did, why are they coming so late? I think they want the spoil. I think they want the glory. But they don't want the pain. For 18 years, the people of Ephraim didn't say a word and they didn't lift a finger to their brothers who were being oppressed. And now they come along. What do we do with this? Because what happens is, what results from this conflict is 42,000 men of Ephraim died. They, they, they died, if you read the rest of the passage, they died because they had an accent. That's how they, they were identified. So it's like if you go to New England, they say sugar. But here we say sugar. So they had an accental difference which identified them as men of Ephraim, and 42,000 of them died. So what's God doing here? I don't exactly know, uh, but, but, but I was drawn to wonder, is it because they've been so arrogant and proud against God's work of salvation? Every time God does a work of salvation in a way they don't like, they seem to take issue with it. They don't help, they just criticize, they complain, they grumble. They don't rejoice over the work of God, they criticize the work of God. Are they neglecting the mercy of God? Are they neglecting to, God, to give God the praise and the worship that he deserves for, for bringing salvation? It's a warning for us, I think. Do we neglect the mercy of God? I mean, do we, do we look at all that God has done for us in Christ and turn away from it? I mean, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I, I don't always think this means that you do it angrily. A lot of people turn aside from the work of God in Christ, and we just don't think about it. We don't need it. We're doing fine. It's kind of an ambivalence. It's kind of an indifference. That, that, that is a neglecting, though, of his mercy. Let me warn you to consider, to think through. You know, all of us are marching toward that final day where we will have a big appointment. Uh, what are we doing? How do we understand our life? What are we doing here? What's our purpose and meaning to life? What happens in this life? What happens in the next life? We have to take issue with those questions. I don't think they're easy to answer all the time, but we need to ask those. If you're here and you're not a Christian, maybe you're frustrated with Christianity. Maybe you think it's, a, it's just crazy you know the, the jews said it's a stumbling block i'm too good i don't need that kind of sacrifice the greek the greeks they just think it's foolish doesn't accord with wisdom god in the sky sends a son it seems like a fairy tale to me let me just encourage you to investigate it you know, a lot of brilliant men and women over the years have seen this to make radically good sense to our experience in this life we have to understand why we exist Christianity, I think, offers the best explanation of who we are and why we're here and why things happen as they do. So, so don't neglect the mercy of God. Call out to him. Ask him. That, that's how salvation has begun. Remember, you, you say, God, whatever you deem is right, you turn from your idols and you seek him. Now, if you're a Christian here, we can also neglect the mercy of God. We take it for granted. It's like kind of, uh, looking at a spouse over 50 years and forgetting just to say, thank you for serving me all these years. You know, th there's many good things that we neglect, good things. We can neglect our salvation the same. Salvation, as you consider, and each week I bend you back to kind of consider the gospel. 
Each week you're reminded of this incredible, unfathomable idea that God would send a son to save. It's supposed to stir your affections for him so that your, your Christian walk isn't based upon duty to secure a love, but it's fueled by his love so that it's done by affection and joy. So maybe we need to repent that we've neglected to be grateful to all that God is and all that God's done. But, but it's, a, it's, a good, it's a good reminder that at the end of hearing how God has saved, then what do we do with it? Both Christian and non-Christian were forced to deal with it. So I encourage you to rejoice, to consider it, to talk about it, to look back over your life. If God had not intersected you, where would you be right now? What would your marriage be like? What would your home be like? What would your children be like? I mean, think about that. Carol and I do this all the time. If he hadn't plucked us off our path, I have no idea. But I know one thing. I know that I'm, I'm happier, more satisfied, contented. So think, and let that kind of cause your affections to be stirred. Let's take a minute now and just ask God. He's been merciful beyond imagination. His mercy has come forth in a Savior. The Savior saves us at great cost. And let's not neglect that mercy that he's given to us. And I'll pray for us in just a moment.